0: All right, what's up, everyone? And welcome to the fifth episode of The Joshua Perry Show. Of course, I am your host, former Buckeye captain and national champ, NFL player, and current Big Ten Network in 97.1, the fan analyst, Joshua Perry. This is the podcast where we talk sports, life, and everything else. We are broadcasting on the Zedia Network. Follow at Zedia Network on Twitter for big time podcasts and great content. This show is sponsored by Todd Pennington with Columbus-based Revolution Mortgage. Todd is my go-to lender. Obviously, they do mortgages, but if you're looking to refinance to a very competitive low rate or cash out for debt consolidation or home improvements, now is the time with historically low rates. Contact Todd Pennington at 614-390-9520 or visit revolutionmortgage.com slash tpennington for more info. Revolution Mortgage is an equal housing lender and MLS ID 168-6046. Seriously, y'all, Give Todd a call. He will absolutely take good care of you. So we've got a really, really packed show this week. Obviously, some big news coming out of Big Ten country. I'll run that down. Uh, But I'm going to be riding solo Dolo this week. It was too much to try to pack in here. Couldn't bring on a wonderful guest like we usually do. Uh, But like I said, we'll start off with that Big Ten news. We had schedules that were released. Uh, We had the announcement, actually, that came in the middle of the week that we tried to hold out for couldn't get it. Um, Then I'll talk a little bit of college football in general and specifically again trevor lawrence why i think he has his number one slot locked down and it's not even close then after that i'll transition into a little real estate advice something that i think we all need to hear and finally of course i'll end with my word of the week so with that let's dive in here we go people big 10 football is back and it was a really interesting week getting there too Uh, Last week, we released the Joshua Perry show on Tuesday. We were hoping that we'd be able to hold out, that we would get some news on Monday, and we didn't end up getting that news. Instead, we got it on Wednesday, and it wasn't without some drama. Uh, Tuesday, Nebraska's president saying that the news was coming Tuesday night had Twitter all up in a frenzy. Uh, We all were waiting, anticipating for that news to come out, and we finally got it Wednesday morning. Did a very long press conference on Big Ten Network. Kevin Warren spoke as well as a bunch of other personnel from the Big Ten Conference. He had ADs, university presidents, and Dr. Uh, Jim Borchers from the Ohio State University, who was a big part of getting Big Ten football back. And they were answering questions about protocols, about safety, all that kind of stuff. Um, And the big thing that we were able to take away from that conversation was the development of rapid testing is really what got the conference there. With the rapid testing, they're able to get a result within 15 minutes of taking the test. And the result can come a couple of days before infectivity. Uh, so basically, it can come before the virus is, is, could be spread throughout a team, which is really unique development. And when you're able to get there, it really cuts down on contact tracing, which has been a big deal. And when you look at these teams, the reason why contact tracing really hurts them is, you know, uh, you're, they're in meeting rooms, for example. You have one player who tests positive. They're in a meeting room of 10 people. Those 10 people, if they were in that meeting room with that specific player for, say, more than 15 minutes, would be subject to contact tracing. They would have to sit out uh, in quarantine for a specific amount of time. They would be subject to a coronavirus test themselves. Um, and ultimately, they could come back if everything checks out. But for a specific amount of time they would have to be out because it would be inconclusive whether or not they have the coronavirus. With the development of a rapid test, everybody can test and everybody can get results within a 15 minute span. So you know the exact status of everybody. Um, The other thing with the contact tracing under the old protocols is they were doing testing, let's say three times a week. With that, there's potentially a two day gap between when you have a test and you could develop the virus within that gap now with everyday testing, they can snatch these players up as soon as possible. So it was really, really awesome uh, with that development. It seemed like that was the, the big thing that pushed it forward. Um, now people were talking about how the tests were com- uh, procured, and that becomes a little bit of an interesting topic. This, you know, return to Big Ten football, this coronavirus has been highly politicized. I think we all understand that. Uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's just the way it is. We had tweets from the president the United States, Donald Trump, uh, saying that there was a stockpile of 150 million tests and that the Big Ten conference could have access to these tests. After the Big Ten returned to play, one of the questions was, uh, you know, how did you guys get these tests? What are you doing? And it seemed from Kevin Warren's response and from the White House response that the Big Ten contracted with an outside company and is paying for the tests on their own. Uh, Specifically, Kevin Warren said it was a point of them to want to make sure that they were paying for these tests to not take away what was available to the public. The Trump administration, coming from the White House, said um, that they weren't going to comment one way or the other on whether they gave Big Ten uh, conference some of these tests. And you know with that administration, they will show vote and they will let you know if they did something. So very interesting there. But that's not to say that the catalyst for this wasn't that conversation that Donald Trump had very publicly uh, with Kevin Warren. And I think it goes to show here that uh, regardless of what side you are on politics, that political influence was huge in this. Donald Trump saying that he had spoken to Kevin Warren and and urging uh, football to come back in the Midwest, I think did have a role in this. I also think for a lot of uh, the governors within these states that were maybe opposed to how some of the coronavirus has been handled on a national level, having access to daily testing and stringent protocols was definitely something that fit into their narrative of safety throughout operating through this coronavirus pandemic. So very, very interesting. Now, I will say there uh, there were some folks that were taking victory laps on Twitter about how they helped the Big Ten Conference bring football back. Um, these people don't work for athletic departments. Uh, these people, um, they, they don't work for the conference themselves. A lot of them are uh, folks who want to feel prominent folks who work in media. Very interesting, and I just want people to take note of uh, which people are taking victory laps right now. Some of them put out very erroneous information to the point where they were deleting tweets. Other of of them uh, were just taking shots at people. They were tweeting at conference commissioners. They were tweeting at media people. They were tweeting at university presidents. And so just take notice of some of those people. Uh, We need to be a little bit cautious about them. Uh, but through all of this craziness, we finally get to a Big Ten schedule. This is the third and hopefully last iteration of this schedule. Now, keys to this, eight games, six divisional, two crossover, plus a championship week in which every team will participate. Very interesting structure to that. They're calling it the eight plus one schedule, and that plus one game is obviously for the division winners going to be the Big Ten conference championship game. Uh, for the rest of the teams, it'll be number two team out of the East versus number two out of the West, number three from the East versus number three from the West, so on and so forth, all the way down, which will make for a very interesting last week of football. But diving into this schedule, uh, week one, man, we hit the ground running. You know, we've got Ohio State getting Nebraska at home in the hashtag Let Us Play Bowl. That'll be interesting, 100%. Uh, Justin Fields gets to get after it for the first time, I think, in a favorable matchup for Ohio State. Uh, Another big game that week is going to be Michigan at Minnesota. Um, This matchup is going to be really interesting. Tanner Morgan, uh, second-best quarterback in the Big Ten, the quarterback for Minnesota. I'm curious to see how he looks coming out of all this. Um, Got his great receiver coming back. Rashad Bateman said he's trying to get back in the game um, after having opted out, so that would be great. Michigan got some questions about their quarterback situation, and last year we saw how slowly they started off, especially offensively. So it'll be a big test for both of these teams. Week two, Halloween, spooky weekend. Ohio State's playing at Penn State. We'll get no whiteout. There'll be no crowd there. Um, but that's going to be a, a big matchup. And really, that'll set the tone early on for the Big Ten East. And potentially, uh, if there's a Big Ten team that's that's able to get into the college football playoff. That matchup will have a lot to say about that. Nebraska gets Wisconsin at home. So here we have their second tough matchup of the year, first two games. Absolutely going to be a tough one for Nebraska, getting the Big Ten West favorite in Wisconsin, got a returning quarterback, uh, some really good players, and always a solid defense there. And then Michigan at, uh, and Michigan State will square up. And it's not to say that Michigan State is going to be good this year. I think they're probably not going to be very good. Got some questions on quarterback, uh, new coach, new system, new everything they're trying to implement. And they didn't get into spring ball. Uh, but that's always a tough game to look out for because of the rivalry there. Week three is going to be a boring week. You've got Rutgers at Ohio State. um, You've got Nebraska at Northwestern, which is one of the winnable games on their schedule. Uh, But I'm I'm throwing Nebraska in here because you're going to see a theme. Week four, we jump right into it. Penn State's playing at Nebraska. They're going to get their ass whooped. Again, another tough game, and that's three out of four now with Ohio State, the East favorite, and and potential national championship uh, caliber team. You've got Wisconsin, the West favorite, and you've got Penn State, uh, second best team probably in the whole conference um, that Nebraska has in the first four weeks. So that's really tough. Indiana is going to be at Ohio State. I actually do like Indiana as a team that is uh, trying to rise up through the ranks uh, through the Big Ten in, in college football picture nationally. They've got Michael Penix Jr. who's a really good quarterback. I like Tom Allen and the uh, the intensity he brings to the game. So OSU should win that one handily, but I don't think that's a game that they'll necessarily be able to cakewalk through. Uh, we've got Illinois at Nebraska. Wanted to put that on there because Illinois did beat Nebraska last year. Week six, Penn State at Michigan. Now this is, again, is going to be another defining game in the Big Ten East. Um, I think Penn State definitely has the edge, but if you're Michigan, uh, you, you can't afford to lose to Minnesota. You can't afford to lose to... Penn State and then ultimately they're going to lose to Ohio State Uh, but you can't afford to lose those types of games especially in a a truncated year if you're a team that's really trying to prove your worth in the Big Ten so I'll have my eyes out for that week six matchup Uh, you've got Minnesota at Wisconsin that's going to decide the Big Ten West in my opinion I know Iowa is going to be a competitive team but it seems like those two are the ones that have probably uh, the most intrigue out of the West for me I think they have the best shot to win their side of the Big Ten. You have Nebraska at Iowa. It's going to be an ass-whooping all up and down the field. And then you've got OSU at Illinois. Again, a crossover game. Very favorable for the Buckeyes. Week seven, you have Ohio State at Michigan State. Should be a win, but um, you know by that time in the year, I think Michigan State will have some things figured out on defense. So Ohio State's going to have to bring their A game. You've got uh, Nebraska at Purdue. And actually Purdue is a team that I I tend to like, Um, you know, they've had some quarterback issues, but they've got guys coming back from injury. I like Jeff Brom. Uh, Their offense is wide open. They need an offensive line, but I think they've recruited really well. They actually have a former recruiting assistant from Ohio State, and I think he's the second-best recruiting guy in the Big Ten Conference uh, on the way that they've been able to put together their team. And then defensively, they just got to get a few more stops than they did last year. So that will be a good matchup. And then week eight, you've got uh, Michigan at Ohio State, obviously V-game. Uh, for Michigan yeah, you got a hell of a streak they're trying to snap there and losses to the Ohio State Buckeyes and if you're Ohio State you feel like you got to win that one obviously for the rivalry's sake but uh, for your chances to make it to the college football playoff it's going to be huge you've got Wisconsin at Iowa which is going to be a Big Ten West heavyweight matchup um, I think Wisconsin has the edge over that but I think it'll be a very good game Michigan State is at Penn State again uh, not that I think Michigan State's going to be anything great this year, but Penn State could stumble in that game if they're not, uh, they don't have things turned on. And then Minnesota and Nebraska, again, I think Nebraska's got a rough go on that. So it'll be very interesting. And then finally, I talked about it that Big Ten championship week and the plus one games. I'll be really intrigued to see how those turn out. I think it'll be an exciting end to the season and something we've never really seen before, but 2020 is the year to try these things out. Um, so looking through this schedule, Super interesting, uh, trying to determine the winners and the losers. Obviously, if you're looking at winners for the East, it's clear cut. It's the Ohio State University is the winner in terms of scheduling. They have the easiest uh, schedule in the East. They don't have any tough crossover games. Um, You know, they've got Illinois in a crossover. I can't remember. And then Nebraska, that first game. So, you know, two games that are easily winnable. And then I think they're the best team in the conference overall, obviously. But. Um, you know having to play Penn State in a year where you're at Penn State and they don't have fans I think is an advantage and then you get your rival in Michigan at home which is going to be the third best team in the east I think that makes sense Um, and of course if you're Ohio State you can't play yourselves that would be your toughest matchup so good on them Uh, winner out of the west I would probably give the edge to Minnesota you cross over versus Michigan but you get them early on and we saw Michigan struggles early on last year and then your other crossover is Maryland. Um, so you've got a little bit of uh, some cushion there in terms of the West lineup. You know, I think it's a little bit tough there at the top. Uh, Wisconsin's a very good team. I think Iowa's good. So, you know, there's not necessarily a ton of separation, but when you factor everything in, I think Minnesota becomes a winner just based off of that crossover schedule. The loser in all this, Nebraska, the Huskers. You cross over against Ohio State, Penn State. You've got Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa in your division. Um, You've got five preseason top 25 teams. That is going to be a tough schedule. And let's talk about how we got here. Um, This schedule isn't anything new. It's not anything groundbreaking. This was actually the original iteration of – the big 10 schedule so like when the first schedule came out a long time ago when we thought it was going to be a regular season this is what the 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 schedule was like except for the fact that they cut off one of the crossover games it's the only difference um nebraska and i'll get into this a little bit wanted to change up the schedule to fit the times but it never happened so let's talk about this loser though nebraska was a team early on that threatened to play elsewhere they said we'll leave the big 10 for a season we'll play elsewhere. we want to play ball this is the team that had the players' parents sue the conference. Their, um, their AG for the state of Nebraska filing a lawsuit. They led in the player-parent movement along with the Ohio State University. Their athletic director was very vocal about this situation. Their coach was extremely vocal about this situation. Um, their university president was caught on hot mic, like I said, saying that the Big Ten was coming back before that information was available to the public and I think a lot of that information leakage was very intentional and they really weaponized uh, the Nebraska beat to disseminate this information which for them was masterful uh, because they were in the middle of a battle and they used uh, some of the voices in Nebraska to make sure that the disdain was heard and to put out information that maybe wasn't necessarily totally accurate but would make the big Ten conference look bad, and ultimately they got the de- the desired result of getting big Ten football back. but now, man, you look at this schedule, they got no favors. They went with that nine game schedule the a d for Nebraska Bill moose had advocated for a totally rebuilt schedule with a little bit more as he put it, fairness in there. Um, you know he's saying that they're a team that wants to rebuild, so you know in twenty twenty where things have been different. Why go with that schedule? Why not assess the times and build a schedule that would be a little bit more fair for a team like Nebraska? And that's really, really funny to me considering the original tone was anyone, any place, anywhere. You know, you got this guy bitching and moaning about an unfair schedule. Mention how tough it would be for a team that's trying to raise their level in the Big Ten West to become a contender to do so with the schedule and these conditions. He took time, actually, in his little... Uh, post-schedule release comments to call out the conference commissioner uh, uh, pointing to the fact that Kevin Warren had to bless the schedule that came out almost as if he knew that it was intentional that this schedule was really hard for Nebraska. Um, Now, I'm going to flip it to this perspective. Imagine you're a player. The day the schedule comes out, you're excited because you're back to playing football, you're practicing with your team, and you catch wind of your athletic director essentially saying that you can't compete because they made a schedule that was too hard. Imagine how terrible you would feel as a player in that locker room. So I'll leave that as that. Um, It's really interesting seeing this from Nebraska, a team who wanted to play. They got everything they were asking for. Uh, Their fans were chirping on Twitter a little bit yesterday. Their AD is coming up a little soft now. Very interesting to see that. Uh, Curious to watch this schedule play out. Some really big games as we went over. And I'm looking forward to getting back with BTN to bring you all the coverage of all the Big Ten conference games. So skipping over to college football at large, I want to talk about my guy, Trevor Lawrence. Really don't want to give too much uh, analysis to some of the games that went on this weekend. There were a lot of snoozers. There were some fun ones, actually. Miami ended up looking really good um, against Louisville, a ranked team. I don't know if they would necessarily be ranked if everybody was playing right now, uh, but it was a really great matchup. They used some tempo offense. They got some guys speed and space. I think their defense uh, showed that They can cover out in space, they can punish people, really, really good game. I'm not diving into all that kind of stuff. I wanna talk about one thing on a national scale and that's Trevor Lawrence. (laughs) Trevor Lawrence has, in the couple of games that Clemson's played already, solidified himself as the number one overall pick and he's by far and away the Heisman front runner right now. And the reason is not because he's so good, it's because the second, and probably in my opinion, the third and fourth best guys are not playing football right now. Trevor Lawrence isn't playing football right now. Tanner Morgan's not playing football right now. Kyle Trask is not playing football right now. So you've got one quarterback who is, to me, a generational talent. He's the only one going. Dude has the arm. He can do it all. Talked about it before. The touch game up close, you know, short range where he's throwing to uh, tight ends, where he's throwing a screen pass, where he's – Putting it over the middle is ridiculous. His deep ball, as we saw a couple of times on display Saturday, absolutely crazy, accurate, perfect velocity. And then when you're looking at the throws where he's standing on the far hash and he's got to throw it all the way out to the, the opposite sideline, he's throwing those on a rope. And even to that point, Justin Fields is good as I think he is. And if I was building an NFL team, I'm a GM today, I'm probably taking Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence because he suits the type of offense I would like to play, neither here nor there. you look at Trevor Lawrence, he even can't make that throw. He he makes a lot of really great throws, but the velocity that it takes to get from that far hash to the sideline, I don't think that Justin Fields does that the same way Trevor Lawrence can. And when you're evaluating, and I know he played the Citadel, and I know it was Wake Forest a week ago, but when you're evaluating a guy like Trevor Lawrence, competition doesn't matter because you're looking at the traits. You're looking at the big arm. You're looking at how tall the guy is. You're watching the mechanics. You know, footwork was fantastic. The way that he was able to stand in the pocket when it got cloudy, to really go one, two, three, four through a progression where last year we saw him maybe locking on to receivers is great. The ability to, you know, pump fake to one side of the field and turn back around and throw to the other because you know that's where it's going to be uncovered. You get that safety to lean over a little bit. All that stuff is fantastic. And that's what the NFL guys are sitting back watching right now. You know, when you're the Patriots and you're grading uh, your quarterbacks, you watch the tape of everybody who's eligible. That's what you're watching right now. It's not a lot of tape. You're watching some of the best guys, these Heisman voters. I know some of these guys. This is exactly what they're watching right now, and they're making their opinions without getting to see Justin Fields in live action at the same time. And I'm going through here. I talked about some of these guys. Like, Justin Fields ain't playing. Sam Ellinger, we've seen him. I, I don't think he's on, on the same level as these guys, but that's the next best guy you're comparing to. Tanner Morgan's not playing. Kyle Trask is going to be really good this year. He's not playing. We watched Ian Book. He was supposed to be one of the best quarterbacks in college football this year. I think he's highly overrated. Jamie Newman's not playing ball Brock Purdy looks like ass you know so when, when we're sitting here it's the Trevor Lawrence show and when you have that type of talent and it's on a stage by itself that's where you get to a situation where he locks himself into that number one spot and everybody's chasing from a disadvantage because they're not playing at the same time so I just kind of wanted to throw that out there um, dude looks really really good but by Clemson being on the field right now, that's, that's a, a built-in, created advantage that he has over everybody else. Because while you're watching Trevor Lawrence go out there and look surgical, you don't get to see Justin Fields do the same thing. So, uh, really, really cool stuff. It'll be good to see how this thing shapes out toward the end of the year when the rest of the guys get in there. But, man, he's got a stronghold on this. Um, I want to transition out of sports for just a little bit to talk about my other career in real estate. Um, first off, anybody, if you have any questions, any needs in in the real estate world, reach out to me because I'd love to help you. Uh, It's become a real passion of mine, um, helping people achieve what I believe is the American dream, and that's home ownership and building equity um, and and truly um, calling your own shot and controlling your destiny through uh, owning a home and owning real estate. But I was uh, on Instagram and I saw a screenshot of a tweet. I found it really interesting, I'll read it to you. It says, income property is a real life cheat code. I've got a $200,000 mortgage being paid down by someone else. Every month, $800 goes to that balance. That means every single month, my net worth goes up $800 tax free without doing anything. All right, well, there's a lot to unpack here. So let's start unpacking it. first you have a $200,000 mortgage being paid down by someone else. So we got to make some assumptions here. Is the assumption that that mortgage is on the rental property or is it on your personal residence? Because the thought here is if you have a personal residence that is not being, that is, still has a mortgage attached to it and you take out a mortgage to buy a rental property, then you're not really building that wealth that you're saying. You're talking about $800 a month, but if you had to take out $200,000 to make that 800 a month, how are you really increasing your net worth? Like I get on the transactional level what you're talking about, but it doesn't really make sense. Now, if you have a rental property that you took out a mortgage on and you're maybe renting from somebody else, I could understand how that might pay your rent there and it would pay down, the property. And so you're, you're trying to create some value, but still you don't own your own home that you live in as a primary residence. So it's a really strange situation. The thought process is if you have a rental property and you have, or if you have a primary residence that has a mortgage on it and you have the money to put down on a rental property, then why wouldn't you just apply that to your personal residence? You see where I'm getting at is you can decrease the balance on the principle of your personal residence by applying that extra money that you would have applied to a down payment to take out another mortgage on a house that you don't live in. And that would reduce your loan term and that would reduce the amount of interest you pay over the life of a loan. And it seems to me that that would be a more efficient way to create wealth. That right there is literally increasing your net worth because you're reducing the amount of debt that you have instead of taking out another loan and increasing the amount of debt that you have. To that $800 again, we're talking about leveraging $200,000 to create $800 a month. That, that doesn't make sense in a transactional basis. The, the reality of the situation is, that's not really your net worth. What happens is you take out that loan, that loan is a lien. So a bank now has a lien on your property. You don't really own that until you send that last payment in. And as long as somebody has a lien on your property, they have an interest to be able to take it away. And they can do it for a number of reasons. Obviously, non-payment, they're going to take your house away. Uh, But let's say you want to listen to these guys. You go to a weekend seminar and they tell you, buy the first house, fix it up, you refinance it, you take out the equity, you put that down on the next house. And you just have now a portfolio of homes built on uh, these loans where you're taking out lines of credit. They can call those due if you hit uh, past a certain amount on your limit. And then these banks are known, uh, big banks are known for gobbling up little banks. They're also known for selling a lot of these loans. Um, if a, a big bank buys a little bank and they were the ones that own your loan, um, they can, the big bank will probably end up calling that thing due. And now you got a house of cards on a bunch of properties that um, you were leveraging just to build a portfolio to say that I've got a net worth of X, Y, and Z and I'm flow in such and such a month. And the reality of the situation is you're really, uh, you know, one of your properties not cash flowing away or uh, one emergency new roof away from really losing your ass on these real estate deals. And I, the only reason I'm getting into this, folks, is because I see a lot of folks, and especially people my age, I'm 26 years old, who want to go to these weekend seminars and they buy these books and they think that um, the the path to wealth can be achieved through uh, leverage, 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 and, and you can do it quickly. And my counterpoint to that is until you're done paying that mortgage, you don't actually own anything. So you might have on paper a portfolio worth $2 million and all those properties cash flow. So on a monthly basis, you're seeing money in. But then let's say the market takes a dump you know, we get a COVID situation, uh, folks aren't at work, they're not paying rent. Well, now your cash flow evaporates. And then you say, well, I need to turn around and sell it. And thank God, it's still a seller's market out here in, in the Columbus market. But um, some markets have been hit hard across America in terms of real estate values. And it's, it's really hard to sell. So now all of that net worth you had on paper is what we call unrealized gain. When you go to sell it, you don't get that. You don't actually get to realize the gain. Um, there's no shortcut to wealth people. And especially when you're dealing with real estate, you're dealing with anything that involves leverage. The best way to do it is take the long road. You know, people on Instagram, they're going to sell you this secret sauce. Reality is they don't have any secret sauce. And if they were giving it out, everybody would be doing it. If it were that easy, what you need to do is you need to be smart. You need to be vigilant. You need to make good decisions. Um, don't put yourself in a, a situation where COVID's in control of your life. Don't put yourself in a situation where uh, you're at the mercy of a tenant making sure that they're paying on time when their life is at the mercy of COVID. Um, be responsible. Be smart. You know, one property at a time. If you're doing investment properties, uh, I prefer that people pay cash. But there are also some some ways that you can do it intelligently without necessarily having to pay cash. But um, you know, <laughs> the Instagram expert, know it all guy. Go ahead and look at their bank statements. See how much uh, these people really have in the bank. And then the other test too, see how, see how many of these people are gonna be around in five, six, seven years. You know, see if they can survive some of these market cycles because the way that they're doing it, it's not uh, a real way to create long-term wealth. So I wanted to throw that out there for anybody who was thinking about doing anything dumb in real estate. Um, finally, I'm gonna end this thing off. I've got my word for this week and the word is communication. So defined communication is imparting or exchanging of information or news. So the reality of the situation is communication is the basis of any relationship. And we've seen how uh, poor communication or a lack of communication can murder a relationship. Literally look at the Big Ten conference, their office, and the university presidents, the parents, uh, the coaches, the players, the fans. Look at what communication did to that relationship. You know, it was talked about communication was happening in silos. ADs and presidents couldn't be in the same room as medical professionals and all that kind of different stuff. And then if you were a coach, if you were a player, a parent, if you were a fan, you felt like you didn't have any good information and you didn't know which information you could trust because of the communication breakdowns that existed. But, uh, you know, I want to examine this on on a more relational level. Uh, I was talking to a friend about this on Friday and we were talking about um, our personal relationships um, our romantic relationships and how communication affects that. And he was talking about his marriage uh, to his wife, and he has two children, and how communication is so integral in their ability to maneuver that environment. And I've talked about with him uh, how communication has affected my relationship with my fiance. And, and in all honesty, I am a poor relational communicator, and folks would be like, "Well, damn, JP, how can you be bad at communicating when you communicate for a living?" Um, the reality of the situation is, it's it's easy to be bad at communicating. I'm, I'm. I am i do not text people back when I'm telling stories. I'll leave out details that I feel like you know aren't integral to the story, and maybe that context is important for someone else. You know, I don't don't do the typical um, you know venting thing with my fiance because I don't want to impart my stress onto her. Um, And I'll zone out in the middle of a conversation. You know, I'll just be talking and uh, be zoning out or I'll be listening to her and zone out because my mind is in so many different places because my feet are not in the same place as my mind. Um, On the flip side, Madison is an oversharing type of person. She'll let me know every detail of everything that's going on. And she's a very intent listener. She can remember, recall, all kinds of different things. Anything I tell her, she's going to remember. So there is a, a deficit in our communication. And when you're not aligned in your expectations in communication, it leads to a breakdown. And from that, I've made a point uh, to get better at going to her and sharing details with her and ultimately asking questions and listening to the answers to understand. Um, It's really helped. It also helps when you have other people around you that force you to be a good communicator too. My friend that I was talking about one thing that we do is we have conversations and we communicate about different topics. You know, we, we both work professional jobs and we're in a professional environment. Madison's finish, finishing up at Ohio state. Um, and she, she works at Abercrombie and Fitch as a fit model. Um, very different from the sales job that I have. Brandon, my friend who I'm talking about, Brandon Gibson, his wife is a stay at home does a great job with the children. Uh, but he works in a sales role as well. And so we can have communication on a level with each other that we don't necessarily have at home. And it's not a bad thing. It's just something to reconcile with for both of us. And so understanding also um, who your communication would be most effective with and how that information is conveyed and disseminated throughout different channels is important too. But the reality of the situation is, a uh, thing comes down to overall alignment, intent, your focus and your perspective when you're having communication. Going back to that definition, it's the imparting or exchanging of information or news. I don't necessarily think imparting uh, information is a great way of communicating. If I'm always talking, if I'm always talking and I'm not necessarily receiving back uh, feedback channels through communication, then I'm really a presenter. You know, it's what I'm doing on this podcast. There's nobody talking back to me. And when I'm presenting in everyday life and I'm only presenting in my relationships, that's not effective because nobody's being heard. The exchanging of information is where we want to be. And you can't exchange with somebody until you're aligned and until you, you make it very clear and you have intent and you have focus in how you are going to exchange those things. So I just wanted to put that out there. Communication is absolutely key. All right, folks. Well, that does it for this episode of the Joshua Perry Show. For my all-star producer Andrew Zolden and the Zedia Network, I am Joshua Perry and this is the Joshua Perry Show.